today's reading is from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of God. Good morning. In many church traditions, this is the Sunday when Christians will remember the ascension of Jesus Christ to the Father's right hand. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us from this passage that deals with that subject. Father, we pray today not only that you will give us understanding of your word, but that you will help us to understand this world differently in the light of the truth of your word, that we will leave this place changed as you speak your truth to us. In Christ's name, amen. When I was a kid, I would often want to stay up late to watch television, and my parents, of course, would make me go to bed. But there was one night when I was tired and I wanted to go to sleep, and my parents forced me to stay up and watch TV. It was July 20, 1969. I was seven years old. We gathered around our little black and white television set to watch a live broadcast. And every time I started to fall asleep, my parents would shake me. Wake me up. Wake up, David. This is going to be exciting. And I'd start to fall asleep. And they'd, wake me up. Wake up, David. You don't want to miss this. And I'd start to fall asleep. And they'd say, wake up, David. You will want to tell your grandchildren about this. So I stayed awake, and I saw it. A man wearing white climbed down a ladder and put his foot on the ground. The man's name was Neil Armstrong, and the ground was the surface of the moon. It was the first time in history that a human being walked on the moon. And for about the next 20 hours that those astronauts were up there, people all over the planet, in big cities, in small towns, people on, on, on remote South Pacific islands would, would walk out of their house, look up into the sky, and say, this is amazing. This is remarkable. Some, someone just like me, one of us, is up there. Now, for almost 2,000 years, Christians have been saying basically the same thing as they contemplate the ascension of our Lord, Jesus. Uh, Acts chapter 1 says that 40 days after his resurrection, while he was speaking to his disciples, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
Ephesians 1 says, God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And I want to just be honest, I am not sure exactly what that means. And there's so many details about this. It's just mysterious. I wish there were more details given in Scripture than, than, there, than there are. But what we do know is that in some very real and yet perhaps incomprehensible way, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, when he became incarnate, he took on our flesh. He became one of us, right? You theology nerds would say it this way. The hypostatic union took place. And when God the Son became the Son of Man, when he took on our flesh, you need to understand this. That was permanent. The hypostatic union is eternal. Christ will never, ever cease to be one who is 100% God, 100% man. And so whatever it means that Jesus was lifted up, whatever it means that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, here's the one thing we know. Um, someone like me, someone like you, one of us is up there. God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Or as we say when we recite the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So that's that's the truth of this event in the history of our redemption, the ascension of our Lord into glory. Now, the question I want to ask today is, if you are trusting Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, how might the truth of his ascension change your life? Is this just some dusty old doctrine that we brush off once in a while to make sure that our theology is correct? Or, or is, this, is this a truth that can change your life? It, if it is, how might it change your life? And I would suggest this truth can change, just radically transform your life in two ways. The, the, the first is this. The ascension of Christ can forever change the way you feel about tomorrow the way you feel about the future. Now, I, my, my sense is that there are a lot of people in this world right now who do not feel very hopeful about the future, and perhaps for good reason. The, 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 the climate on our planet seems to be changing in dramatic and very dangerous ways uh, because of um, development. Uh, 10,000 species of creatures um, go extinct every single year. There are right now over 13,000 nuclear weapons stockpiled among the nations of, of, of the planet Earth. The, the number of refugees worldwide now totals over 65 million people. So you understand why a lot of people, when they, especially I, I'm finding among the, the young generation, thinking about the future that my generation is handing to them, just feel not very hopeful. For other people, the, 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 there's a feeling not, of, of not being hopeful, not just about the world, but about their own personal life. There are some people who perhaps are, are stuck in a marriage right now that seems so unrewarding and unfulfilling. It feels, feels like it's, it's not going to change. 
Other people are, are stuck in a condition of loneliness. They're not married. They wish they were, but they don't see that on the horizon for them. A lot of people feel very frustrated in their jobs. Like, this is a dead-end job that I'm in. There, there are people who feel very frustrated as immigrants, no matter what they do. Sending in paper after paper. It's like they will, ne they will never be given the documents that would allow them just to flourish in the, in the land that is now their home. So a lot of people uh, on a, a kind of a worldwide basis and other people on a very personal basis feel hopeless. Now, would you agree with me that Christians are not immune to those feelings? Now, how many of us have, from time to time, struggled with just feeling like the future is so dark for me? feel very hopeless about it. it we struggle with this, don't we? And this is why the apostle told the, the Christians he was writing to in Ephesians chapter 1, this is why the apostle told them that he was, he was praying this for them. He says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you were called. He said, I'm just praying that God would do something to, to open, what does it mean, the eyes of your heart? I think it means more than just what you see physically, but that what you, what you know and believe deep down inside. He's saying, I'm just praying that God would let you see he has called you to a very specific hope. Now, when the apostle used that word hope, and in fact, when the, when the Bible uses the word hope, it, it doesn't use the word hope in the way we do. For, for us, hope is just kind of a way of expressing wishful thinking. Like, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. I hope I win the lottery. Wouldn't that be nice? So, so hope, hope is just something that, it expresses something that would be nice if it were to happen, but we don't really think that it will. That's, listen, in the Bible, the word hope is not used that way. In, in, in the Bible, the word hope it refers to something, listen, it refers to something that God guarantees, even though it has not yet been revealed. This is why... 1 Peter chapter 3 says that we have, as believers, we have a living hope. That's why Titus chapter 2 says that we have a blessed hope. This is why uh, Hebrews chapter 6 says that we have a hope that is certain, that is, that is, that is sure. That's the way Paul's using this, th that word in, in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people or in his saints. Now, that, that phrase, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, that has, that has historically been very difficult to interpret. And scholars are not sure if it means that uh, God has a glorious inheritance prepared for us, which is a truth the Bible teaches, or if it means that when God looks at us, he sees us as his glorious inheritance. Not, people are not really sure. But you know what? Either way, it's good, right? I mean, either, either, it either means that God has a treasure for us or that God sees a treasure in us. And either way, that means that for us who are following Christ, guys, listen, the future is very, very bright. And so Paul's just saying, I, I am... I'm just praying. Your, your, your heads are down. You feel so dark. You, you feel like life is never going to change. I, he says, I'm just praying that God would open your eyes 
to see that the future he has for you in Jesus is brilliant beyond what you can even look at. It's, it is so bright and clear. Now, why would Paul talk that way? I, I wonder if Paul was aware of the story we read in Acts chapter 1. I'm sure that he had been told this, that 40 days after Jesus resurrected, um, as he was appearing to his disciples, speaking to them, he was taken up before their eyes, and after that, they did exactly what I would have done. They stood there looking, like, what just happened? Did you see that? What just happened? They're staring at the skies, and we read here that these two men dressed in white, probably angelic beings, appeared to them and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So I wonder if Paul is just saying, guys, the future is so bright for you because the Jesus who ascended into glory, he's coming back someday. Now, don't you wonder what did these angels mean when they said he will come back the same way you saw him go? I think what they meant was he ascended to heaven physically. He will return physically. He ascended to heaven in bodily form. He will return in bodily form. This is something that's important to understand. The Bible tells us that the return of Christ is not just going to be some kind of vague feeling of spiritual well-being that will begin to grow in, in the world. No, it tells us that Jesus someday will physically return to this world. And when he does, he will make all things new. Wars will come to an end. Imagining living, living in a world where they don't even make weapons because there's no more need for them. Wars will come to an end. The destruction of the environment that grieves so many of us will cease. The, the, the dead will be raised. I must see my grandma again. Right? And, and, and everyone will be judged. Everyone. There will be no loose ends in the moral fabric of the universe. No, 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 no wrongs that have not been righted. Everyone will be judged. The unrepentant, the unredeemed will be cast out of the kingdom. And, and Revelation 21 says... The dwelling place of God will be among his people. God himself in Jesus will live here with us. So guys, that's the future that awaits us in Christ. Not, not a future of failure, not a future of defeat, not a future of shame, not a future of loneliness. No, listen, the ascended Lord is right now seated at the Father's side listening for the Father's word, ready to come back here. Amen? So that, that truth throughout the ages has uh, transformed people. The, 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 the thought of the hope to which God has called us has for centuries filled Christian women and Christian men with courage that is unflinching. Because he's coming. But that's the, the reason, the reason Perpetua, a young African woman in the third century, the reason why she chose decapitation rather than renounce her faith in Christ. The, the reason Oscar Romero in the 1970s kept preaching the gospel publicly, even though he knew Salvadoran death squads were going to kill him. The, the, reason, the reason Christians today in, in Burkina Faso 
um, risk death every time they gather to worship Jesus. And they gather to worship Jesus. The reason Christian men and women have been filled with courage in the face of this world is be, it's because of the promise God made the church through those angels in Acts 1, verse 11. This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven, he will come back the same way you saw him go. Isn't that good news? And so, um, whatever you might be facing in your future, you don't know what it is. It might feel pretty scary right now. You might have a long time waiting for things to change. If, if, you, if you know that Jesus, your Savior, the one who took upon himself your nature, the one who died on the cross for your sins, in other words, the one who, who loves you more than anyone has ever loved you, that he has ascended and is coming back, and it just changes. Doesn't it change the way you feel about tomorrow? So that's one way this... This truth can change us. Another is, is this. It can change the way, not just the you, way you feel about tomorrow, but the way you feel about today, right now. So let me ask you some questions. They're personal questions. Don't answer them out loud, but just to think about. Here's some questions for you. Are, you. are you expecting God to be actively involved in your life today? Are you expecting him to... Listen to your prayers. Or do you have this nagging feeling he's just ignoring you? Are, are, are you expecting him to respond to your needs and your hurts with wisdom, power, grace, love? I'm asking these things not to, not to scold you, but just to tell you, if you're not, ex listen, believer, if you're not expecting these things, start expecting them. Because God is at work in your life. So Paul says here, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, verse 19, that you may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, dominion and power, and every name that is invoked. We, we sang about that just a few moments ago. The same power, right? The same power, what? That raised Jesus, that exalted him to heaven. That power is at work in your life. You say, Pastor, you're lying. I don't see that power at work. Um, just wait, all right? The Bible would tell us that God, he often works in very mysterious ways, and, and often he will keep the ways he's working hidden from us for a time. But I suspect that God is doing more in your life right now than you can see. He's doing more in your life right now than you can imagine. And the reason I say that is not because I want it to be true. I say that because that's what the word says to us. The same power that raised Jesus. Paul says, I'm just praying that your eyes would be open to see. That power is for you. So you know what this means, believer? Um, the fact that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father, I think, is symbolic language for, for, for saying a position of absolute authority and power and control. That means that this morning you woke up in a, in a world that is under the authority of the one who loves you more than anyone else ever has or ever will. The, the one who loves you enough, who loved you enough to die for you. 
He's the one calling the shots in this world. Sometimes I just need to, re- do you, are you like this? I just need to remind myself of this. Remind yourself of this. Guys, listen, the government is not in control of this world, right? Multinational corporations are not in control of this world. The media, the entertainment industry, they're not in control of this world. The devil is not in control of this world. Verse 22 says, God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed Jesus to be head over everything. Why? For what purpose? The, The next two, three words in verse 22, they blow my mind. This is almost more than I can can comprehend. God placed all things under Jesus' feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, for us. Isn't that crazy? The, the, The reason the Father placed everything in this world under the authority of his Son was for the strength and well-being of anyone and everyone who through faith will follow Christ for us. So I don't know what kind of challenges you're going to face this coming week. You don't know either. I don't know what kind of struggles you're you're dealing with right now or what what, what deep areas of of just hurt or heartbreak you have. But whatever that is, listen, guys, isn't it something just to think that seated right now, listen, in the control room of the universe, if that exists, But the one right now who's in control of everything is your Savior who loves you. And he is right now employing his his authority for your benefit, my benefit, to empower his followers so that we can accomplish God's purpose for us in this world. I mean, if that sinks in, that's just going to kind of change the way you wake up on a Monday morning, right? I live in a world under the control of my Savior. John Calvin wrote this. He said, since since Christ has gone up there and is in heaven for us, let us note that we need not fear to be in this world. That's true, isn't it? We need not fear. I was reading this week of a man who, he came to faith in Christ when he was in college. He was a college football player. And he was intrigued when some of his teammates invited him to a Bible study. He saw something going on in in, in these other football players. And so he went to this Bible study at at someone's house. And he walked in, and and the room was just filled with these, you know, huge, muscular young men, just filled with college athletes. And he was surprised to see that the person leading the Bible study was a little old lady. It was like half the size of of these young men that were there and she was opening the word and talking to them about Jesus their lives were being changed and this this little old woman she had the strangest discipleship technique for these new converts this this was her assignment every one of them was required to recite out loud 100 times every week first john chapter 4 verse 4 well 100 times every week they had to stand up and out loud say Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Just, what, what did that elderly woman want for these young men? She wanted them, she wanted the eyes of their hearts to be open. 
to, to begin to learn to live this life of faith in which they see that things are not always the way they appear, that there's more going on than, than meets the eye, that the one who's in control of, of everything is the one who died for, for us and was raised again, and that his power, do you believe this? His power is at work in this world for our blessing and good. And so that's what this truth of the ascension of Christ should do for us. I, I'd love it if it would do that for us, and wouldn't you? Just change the way we think about tomorrow. Right? I don't know who holds, how does it go? I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And I know he holds my hand. Just change the way we think about the future. What, what would it, what would look, look like in, uh, in New York City where so many people, especially among the, uh, the younger generation, are just kind of covered in this cloud of hopelessness? What would it look like if there's a community of men and women, boys and girls, who walk through life filled with hope? Don't you think that there'd be some double takes? People say, what, what is going on with them? Where do they get this hope? So it can change the way we think about tomorrow and change the way we live today. We should not kind of uh, trudge through each day with our heads held down thinking, oh, woe is me. We have a risen, exalted Savior. He's right now, the Bible says, interceding for you. He's in control of everything that happens. And he's at work. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for us. Let's pray together. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open. That the truth of what you have done, Father, through your Son, Jesus, would radically transform the way we think about ourselves, our world, our future, our lives. That we would be filled with hope of the glory of God. In Christ's name.